spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Definitely feeling a bit invincible this week. It's episode 360 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and oh, I've been so excited for this one, Invincible. Now streaming the first three episodes on Amazon Prime Video. Of course, the adaptation of the Skybound story from Robert Kirkman and company. And yeah, guess what? We've got Robert Kirkman on the show this week to talk about the brand new adaptation for this, the animated series. We'll ask him about this. But that's not all because J.K. Simmons is on the show this week. Also, Stephen Young talking about playing Omni-Man and Mark Grayson, respectively. Oh, it's going to be a big show. And that's not even it because Matt Long is here, too, to talk about the season three premiere of Manifest. Yeah, the mystery is really going to be taken up a notch on Manifest. So we'll talk about what's going to be coming up on April the 1st for that big Manifest premiere and so much more. There's some very, very interesting nerd news this week. Comic book reviews are back this week as well. But yeah, let's start things off by talking about Invincible with creator Robert Kirkman, J.K. Simmons, and Stephen Young. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is voice actor Roger Craig Smith, and you guys are listening, you lucky people, to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And we're back. Definitely one of my more anticipated series of the year. Invincible, the adaptation from the Robert Kirkman story from Skybound, is on Amazon Prime Video now. The first three episodes got a chance to participate in the press event for the show and talk to a lot of the amazing people that are involved, including these guys, J.K. Simmons and Stephen Young, who play Stephen Young, who play Omni Man and Mark Grayson. And the first question was for J.K. and that was, did being a father actually draw you to the role and steven's question was hey what was it like being 17 again yeah the father-son thing for me was definitely a part of what uh, what appealed to me about doing this in the first place being yeah being the father of a 17 year old i mean what is it almost two years ago that we were recording this so you know my own son was uh, you know 19 or 20 at the time my daughter was 17 so it was uh, that aspect of it and the fact that it was really well written, you know, that aspect of it uh, made it just really accessible to me and uh, and something I, I felt a connection to. And then, you know, being able to play the scenes with uh, Sandra and with Steven, which was the, the vast majority of my work was with the two of them, who were both really wonderful actors that I was uh, already familiar with and uh, just had uh, confidence in that it would be a, a, a good time and we'd do some good work. For me, I think I'm very lucky that I also now a father, I think uh, maybe the merging of perspective wasn't really fully there until that happened for me. So it was really cool to like access that in the middle of it. So yeah, going back to a 17 year old is not fun sometimes, but also it's very real. And, and in some ways, you know, it, it's, it's fun to play because there's a lot of things that perhaps I also wanted to talk to my father about. And so getting to play that out in this way with someone as incredible as JK, I think that's the cool part is like a simulated reality of that relationship is, is, is fascinating. So it was really fun. Next up for JK Simmons and Stephen Young was for JK. Did the complexity of roles like that he had like counterpart that he's had before, did that actually prepare him to play Omni-Man in this series? And for Stephen, how much of the source material did he actually read to help make Mark a little bit more relatable? Yeah, counterpart, you know, obviously it was playing two for the dozens of people who actually saw counterpart. 
I was actually playing two distinctly different versions of uh, of the same character who were in, lived in parallel worlds, and and that that sort of you know Jekyll and Hyde uh, aspect of playing those two different characters really comes into play surprisingly often now that I think about it, and certainly in the case of uh, uh, Nolan, there are aspects of him that are you know sort of revealed as the show goes along that I that I don't want to get into, but I think. Uh, in the world that that Robert has created, it's uh, it, it's really I'm just stammering so much because I because I'm leery of spoilers, but yes, there there is a complexity and can often be in in you know in well written animated stuff, uh, even more complexity than uh, than you often find in uh, in live action stuff that you're doing because uh, because there are virtually no boundaries for the creators, which uh, must be fun. I don't know if I found, I mean, I had re- uh, read the comics prior. I actually read them when I was first on getting to befriend uh, Robert. I just do- dove into his work. And, you know, I think he wrote just something true. I think um, not all, but like sometimes the journey of a father-son relationship is like, you got to try to pin your father down one time or like try to like beat him in an arm wrestling contest or whatever it is. And I think that journey is always... Uh, interesting of coming out of the shadow of someone that you know form helps form you and um, realizing yourself is a universal journey I think for all people and so there wasn't necessarily a touchstone that that I pinned the experience on I think like it was really just knowing what it's like to be a son and then also now knowing what it's like to be a father and um the dynamics and the feelings that are all kind of intertwined in that space. That's kind of what was really fun to, to rely on. Next up, it was great to get a chance to finally talk to Robert Kirkman, who of course was one of the co-creators of Invincible. My first question for him was what made Stephen Young the perfect Invincible and what was it like actually pairing him up with J.K. Simmons? Robert, I'm sure you were really looking forward to working with Stephen Young again, and he does such a fantastic job in this series. What makes him the perfect Invincible, and what was it like pairing him with JK? You know, having those two guys interacting and having them working together, they've got to be pretty good buddies and stuff too. It's just really great. I mean, anytime you can see two actors at their level working together is a lot of fun. I think Steven, as an actor, is somebody I've gotten to know over the years who puts, you know, just every ounce of himself into every performance. Uh, I think you can see it in roles like, you know, his character in Minari and, you know, all the different things that he's done. You know, I think that, uh, you know, I'll always be wanting to work with Stephen Young, but uh, he's somebody that thinks of every little different aspect of the character that you as a writer would never even consider and, and brings just so much to that performance that it, it really comes through, you know, in the, the roles. And, uh, you know, I think his Mark Grayson is a, a revelation. You know, I'm getting to know a character for the first time, even though I've known him for almost 20 years. It's it's really amazing what Stephen's been able to do with that character. Next question for Robert Kirkman was, how much thought did he put into how this show would maybe parody superhero stories since, hey, they've become a lot more popular since he actually created Invincible. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, I mean, I think we do a little bit of that, even just in the opening scene of the first episode. I think that, you know, that's us trying to show how a premier functioning superhero team would actually operate. I think that the fact that they move in very confidently and they focus on evacuation and they, you know, move people out of there before they ever start fighting, I think is, uh, uh, I wanted to try and show like the nuts and bolts of how somebody would really operate in that situation. 
And I think that, uh, you know, most movies handle it by, you know, having a line of dialogue where it's like, they evacuated the area, we're good. And you're like, what, who did, why, how, how long did that take? When did they know this was happening? How are they able to do that? You know, that's one little aspect of it. But as the series progresses, we're really excited about the prospect of, you know, doing what we did in comics where we get to, you know, make fun of superhero landings and all the different tropes that have cropped up in, you know, live action storytelling that are, you know, very present, you know, so, so who knows, we'll, we'll, we'll have a lot of fun uh, as the series progresses doing all kinds of different things like that. So one of the cool things about Invincible is some of the cast actually got to record together. So one question that was posed to Robert was having Sandra, JK and Steven all perform together in the booth recording together how much did that add to their dynamic yeah i mean i have recordings of that on my phone and they're really cool like seeing them all together in the booth uh, was a lot of fun you know that's really the core of our especially our first season those three characters how they interact how they relate to each other uh you know having them in the booth together i think was something really special because they were able to kind of play off of each other and and draw off of their emotions in a way that a lot of voice actors can't because a lot of voice acting is done you know by yourself and the performances are kind of cut together after the fact and we did do a fair amount of that on this show as well but yeah i mean you know to see father and mother and son like all working together to craft these scenes was was really great and i think makes this show really special this was another really good question I thought that someone had for Robert Kirkman, and that was with the success of The Walking Dead. What did he learn about the adaptation process over the years going into Invincible? Yeah, I think with Walking Dead, I was pushing for more changes. I wanted to really shake things up. I really wanted to surprise people. I was always pushing to kill characters that shouldn't have been killed. Most of the time, I was talked out of being too crazy. But when it came to do Invincible, I think I have a little bit more respect for the source material than I did when I was younger. And I recognize that there are storylines and events that, you know, absolutely have to be adapted in a very, you know, true way to how they originally were told. Otherwise, you change the core aspect of what it is you're trying to adapt. And so I've become a little bit more uh, calmer in my old age to where I'm not trying to push the boundary constantly. Like I, I still want to like, you know, pay tribute to the fans that have supported this comic book for many, many years by, uh, you know, bringing them, you know, what they expect while also twisting it to keep it as exciting as, as it needs to be. And finally, the last question for Robert Kirkman was, I mean, it's hard not to talk about Invincible without talking about Corey Walker and Ryan Otley. And what was it like to have them be a part of this project as well after working on the comic for so many years? Yeah, I mean, Invincible wouldn't be Invincible without those two guys. Uh, they're absolutely essential parts of the process. And being able to bring them into the animated form, you know, was great because, you know, I felt very at home and confident that what we were doing was very cool. Having Corey handle all the character designs, I knew that we were in a great place that we had somebody that, you know, knew Invincible as intimately as I did, that was very much in the mix. And, and uh, aside from being the lead character designer, you know, Corey was working in the office full time, you know, with the animators and the supervising director and, you know, the storyboard artists. And, you know, they would come to him and be like, oh, you know, would this guy punch this way? Would this move this way? Like, how is this supposed to happen? We're thinking about changing this character this way. Like, what do you think about that? And he'd be like, yeah, I don't do that. So he was a, a very essential part of the production and was very much present. Uh, every step of the way in, in a way that I wasn't able to because I was, you know, running around doing all kinds of different projects. So, uh, you know, he was an absolutely essential element. And it was great having Ryan on board to, you know, look things over and, and give his two cents on things. And, you know, his opinion is always, uh, always valued. But yeah, it's been a great process. And I love having those guys along for the ride. If you guys have already seen Invincible, you know how just jaw-droppingly amazing 
These first few episodes were going to be releasing weekly after this week. First three episodes available now on Amazon Prime Video. And then weekly after that. Try to avoid spoilers if you haven't watched it already. I'm not going to give you any here. It is that good. You're not going to want to miss Invincible when you're watching it on Amazon Prime Video every week from now on. That's going to do it for my chat with the creator and some of the cast members of Invincible. I'll have more from them next week as well. But up next, it's time to talk about Manifest with Matt Long, who plays Zeke. And maybe a bit of a spoiler warning because he tells us a lot about what's coming up this season. That's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Melissa Rockford from Manifest, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy. Get ready to unravel a little bit more of the mystery of Flight 828 when Manifest returns to NBC on April the 1st. That is a Thursday at 8 p.m. And this guy had a very eventful season last season. He plays Zeke on the show. It's Matt Long. Matt, what's up, man? Hey, James. Not much. How you doing? Pretty good, man. Hey, it looks like you're going to be a little bit warmer this season, actually, than you were in season two. So let's take a look back <laughs> hey, at that finale. Absolutely. Yeah, let's take a look back at the finale for a second. How much did you know about what your character's fate was going to be before that finale? Well, it was a slow build with his, you know, the freezing returning and the hypothermia, the frostbitten fingers, the exposure. It happened. It started happening multiple episodes before the finale. And I knew what was going to happen with regard to like the lake and, and uh, jumping in and saving Cal and all that. And then I don't remember when I found out about, about coming back to life. I knew that I was not going to die and be dead <laughs> because I was really worried about it because I love the show and I, and I, and I have such a great time on it. And, and Jeff assured me well in advance that I was not, not going to, in fact, come up to my death date and be dead something was going to happen i I don't remember exactly when i found out what that something was but but uh you know the lake and the 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 freezing lake and and the meth heads and the the lightning and falling in the water and all that we had to we went uh jack messina and i who plays cal and the guys who play uh, the three shadows the we call them the meth heads (laughs) We all went and did some scuba training a couple of weeks before we shot that episode. Oh, nice! Because they really wanted us to—they they really wanted us to be comfortable as po- as comfortable as possible under the water. So we trained with uh, regulators. You know, the the breathing apparatus that you have to use when you're snorkel and when you're scuba diving. We had to do like I don't know some of the things that you have to do to get certified, like taking it out of your mouth when you're underwater and then putting it back in, staying under, clearing it, all that with no goggles on. Uh, letting your goggles flood and it was it was pretty intense because i've never scuba dived before but it was cool i didn't need to do any of that really because i didn't end up having to use the scuba equipment when i shot i went underwater a lot but it was never deep enough or long enough to need to use that it was more of like a safety thing but hey now you know and that's the beauty part and it was cool so that that, that always works yeah. out too it was cool. All right. Well, obviously things are kind of worked out for zeke and michaela last season absolutely but i kind of feel like the honeymoon's not going to last very long, Matt. So how much can you tell us about how things start <laughs> off when with the two of them this season? Well, it actually starts off on the honeymoon. You find Zeke and Michaela in Costa Rica trying to have a normal sort of life. Season three picks up about three months after the end of season two. I think it's been about a year and a half after 828 returned. And they're just having a great time together on the beach. But then there's a shared calling. It's the first calling that anyone's had for some time. It's a shared calling between Michaela and Ben and Cal. Ben and Cal are not with Zeke and Michaela, but of course, it's it's a very intense calling for Michaela. She jumps on the phone. 
and that just sets the action in motion. We end up adding a new character. We we meet her the first episode of the season. You know, a big a big part of season two, sorry, season three for Zeke is this like trying to live a normal life and some return to normalcy after he survived his death date. But he he can't really do that because he's married to this woman who is sort of tormented by these callings and she has to go follow them, who also has these conflicting, uh, um, I guess, unsettled and conflicting feelings about her ex because you know the whole story with that. And then he also comes back with this supernatural thing himself, Zeke. He doesn't have callings anymore, but he has this other thing that he discovers early on in the season that he he has to figure out. And at times it becomes it's sort of a curse and at other times it becomes it gives him insight into things and might become a sort of tool in the future. Ah, that's very cool. Can't wait to find out what that's going to be. Now, I always love, you mentioned Cal. I always love <laughs> the relationship that Zeke and Cal actually have. It's, they really have this special bond. I mean, Cal is a bond with the passengers, mm-hmm. sure, but their bond is really different. So talk about that relationship and yeah. will we actually see that grow even more coming up this season? Yeah, we we haven't had quite as much as we did last year, but we have had some really sort of touching moments and it's like a I don't know if it's a father-son relationship or just like a uh, an older brother almost relationship that they have with Zeke and uh, Zeke being sort of like an older brother figure. Yeah, there there are multiple times throughout the season when they're together and uh, we kind of do some cool things together. But like I said, so much of Zeke's story with regard to the, the callings and the death date and everything was told last season. So there's not quite as much, unfortunately, at least at least not yet. I haven't read the finale yet, but there there is some there. So I keep thinking back to when Jared saved Zeke last season, and I thought, you know, maybe they'd turn the corner. Maybe it's not going to be so bad. And then, of course, what happens at the wedding. So, I mean, is that friction ever really going to go away, you think? Is that relationship ever going to turn a corner? Yeah, it it continues to evolve in season three. From early on in the season, throughout the season, it's sort of interwoven in the big story. And it definitely changes. And there are some highs and lows. <laughs> I don't want to give anything away. But um, it continues to evolve. Nice, nice. There's something to look forward to right there as well. So there's always been kind of a religious undertone to the series, which you saw really brought more out more in season two. So would you say we'll ever see, we'll ever see, uh, do, are we going to see more of that? in season three and will actually Zeke actually be affected by it somewhat? Yeah. It's a continuing theme throughout the show. And I think it will, will be, you know, Jeff Rick wants to tell this story over the course of six seasons. And I, and if we're lucky enough to get there, I think it's going to be a theme that plays out throughout the entire series and, and probably continues to get more ingrained in the show. Does it affect Zeke? You know, it does maybe a bit more indirectly than the, the eight to eight passengers. But it affects him because he is married to Michaela. So anything that happens to them also has repercussions for him because he loves her so much. So I, I guess in that way it does, yeah. It's funny because you know, we t- you talk about that and, and it seems like if anybody's going to really know Michaela and what she's going through right now, it would be Zeke, right? But at the same time, do you, do you kind of feel like, especially since he's not having callings anymore, might we see a little bit of a strain in that relationship at times this season sure. as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's just, like I said, it's a struggle for Zeke this season because he does have such a strong connection to Michaela and, and did in season one and two, because they had this shared thing that 
Jared can experience and, and people outside of the 828 or the, or the return people can never understand. And that is also an ongoing theme, not just for Zeke, but also for Jared, because as I said, the story continues to evolve between Zeke and Jared and Jared and Michaela. Yeah. I mean, me as an actor too, I've kind of had to figure out how to be Zeke this season because so much has changed about him and he doesn't have this, uh, he, you know, feeling like left out, you know, and so playing against that uh, Zeke feeling left out and, and also Matt as a, as an actor, trying to find my place in the story and Zeke's place in the story and, and continue to be active and to, to play an important role in it. Luckily, Jeff is Jeff Rake, the creator is, has, uh, like I said, given me some really cool things this year, which I'm really thankful for. Yeah. It's complicated. You know, he had this thing and he doesn't have it anymore. So yeah, it, it brings with it a lot of repercussions. Talking to Matt Long, who of course plays Zeke Landon on Manifest, which comes back on April the 1st. That's a Thursday on NBC. Matt, I want to touch on that for a second, too, because it dawns on me that maybe that's mm-hmm. how Olive's been feeling, too, right? Because she was she's kind sure. of the one that's left out of the shuffle in the, in the Stone family. So does that maybe kind of mm-hmm. at some point give them a connection that they didn't have before? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think there are a lot of parallels between their, their experiences, Olive's experience in the beginning and Zeke's experience in season three. I'm trying to think if we see, we don't see that play out on screen as much. I haven't had as much with Luna Blaze, who plays Olive this year. Like I said, I haven't read the last episode either. You know, there are so many storylines going at all times. And I think, I think more happens this season than has happened in either of the first two seasons. And so there uh, you know, there's like a little groups of characters that are all, all kind of following their own storylines. And because of COVID, we had, and you feel so insulated, you know, you don't see each other as much, you, you know, you, the stories are more sort of um, contained in a way. They're big stories, but they don't, we don't have like, we don't have as many scenes with all of the actors in them as often. But yeah, I, I coming back to your original question, I, I do see a lot of parallels uh, parallels with their, their shared experiences and the frustration of, of finding your place. Now, Matt, we saw what happened with the Major last season, obviously, and you'd think that would kind of be one less complication for the Stone family and the passengers, but <laughs> why do I have a feeling that's not the case at all? It's not at all. You know, it's something that still haunts Sanvi, uh, and and her secret does get exposed this season slowly and here and there but it's obviously a huge secret and burden for her to carry and it it, it makes an this issue that she's struggling with it, it makes an appearance in multiple episodes and multiple characters get involved with it so yeah and and we also meet another character that has something to do with it as well i mean so it's it's it, she's gone but not forgotten I know who you're talking about, but we're not going to spoil it. People are just going to have to find out on April 1st. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, so, Matt, uh, you've certainly gotten to work with a lot of great members of this um, amazing cast, and you said you don't get to see any, each other as much, but is there someone on the show that we might actually see Zeke have more scenes with this season that he really didn't get to work with a whole lot before? You know, most of my stuff is with Melissa. There is a, we, we do move in to a new place. We meet another person there who is very uh, close to Michaela, and so in turn becomes close to Zeke. This person has some insight into some of Zeke's struggles, his internal struggles, that rocks Zeke to the core. 
so that that may be what you're hinting at yeah there's a new a new a new person that that we um see from Michaela's past interesting interesting now matt before i let you go it seems like there is always new threats in some way shape or form on this show so how much can you actually tease for us about the potential threats coming up this season or do you kind of feel like you know deep down the mystery of the plane itself is the real threat yeah i mean you know there's a there, like i said earlier there there are, i think more things happen this season than they, than happened in the first two seasons uh, I mean, our, our mid-season finale, there is a reveal, a, a revelation there that is absolutely huge repercussions for every single member of A2A and every character in the show. We find out that Cal's original calling is a, is a, is maybe more profound than, than we even realize. It's all connected. We see the return of Dark Lightning plays a big role this season. Some some callings from earlier in the show come back, and I think Ben has a calling where he sees the peacock again. It's really cool and satisfying as actors and, and participants in the story, but also as audience members, when we see story and, and things that are set up early on, season one, season two, continue to come back. It's like a puzzle, you know, and, and so the audience gets to, to immerse themselves in this and say, oh, I remember when that happened and make connections in it. And the fans get online and they start making up or coming up with these theories and hypotheses about who people are and what relationships they are and what's going to happen to this person or that person. There's a whole bunch of stuff coming, and I don't think anyone's going to be disappointed this season. And it all begins on Thursday, April the 1st. No fool. And hey, it starts at 8 p.m. Eastern time on NBC season three of Manifest. <laughs> I can't wait for you guys to see this first episode with this guy because I think it's a good one. It's Matt Long. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Hey, thanks so much, James. Wait until you guys see what happens in the first episode of season three of Manifest. Your jaw is going to hit the floor. And I think that actually Matt Long's going to have a very, very interesting story coming up this season and connecting with a character that maybe you wouldn't think that he would too. So that's my little tease of what's going to be coming up for the season three premiere of Manifest, which is going to be happening at eight o'clock on April the 1st on NBC. Make sure you're not missing out on that. That's going to do it for my interview with Matt Long from NBC's Manifest. Up next, it's time to talk about comics again, what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Stephanie Phillips, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. No matter what device you're on, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, or maybe you've just got the comic in your hand, like Harley Quinn number one, the 2021 version from DC Comics, written by Stephanie Phillips, Riley Rosmo on the art, Ivan Placencia on the colors, and Duran Bennett on the letters. Now, maybe a little bit of spoilers in this review, but probably not a whole lot. Now, Harley's return to Gotham, because this is post-Joker War, by the way. Now, it isn't exactly a warm welcome for Harley. That much I could tell you. The city's kind of found something new to hate, in this post Joker in this post Joker War world, and she's a little bit of a part of that. That much I can tell you. Now the difference is though, Harley's actually trying to make up for her past, even though she's got a clean record, which again is part of something that we found out in Joker War. So that's actually a very interesting aspect of her character. I thought that was brought out in this particular story. Now she's even trying to do this with, and this might be a little bit of a spoiler. She's trying to do this with Batman's blessing, which again is something else that's very, very new for Harley. Now whether or not she's going to be actually be able to do that is debatable, but there is a familiar face that could really pose a problem in this whole endeavor, 
and it's not who you might think it is. Okay, so I, I will I will set you up for that much. This is a very different Harley story, and that and it doesn't try to be too funny, and that's one of the things I really like about it. It is funny. Don't let don't get me wrong. Stephanie Phillips does a great job with the humor here, but there's so many Harley stories that you feel like okay, Harley has to be funny, so let's make it more funny, and not everybody can be the Harley Quinn animated series, right? So this book does a very good job at balancing the humor and letting it land when it needs to land, which is one of the things I really liked about it. This is a Harley who genuinely wants to be better, and it shows, but her spirit is still there, which I really, really think is cool. And I love, I've always liked Riley Rossmo's art anyway, but it helps just dial up the crazy a little bit more in a Harley Quinn book where it needs to be. So that I really like, it's all in the eyes too, by the way. It's the, the eyes really bring it out as far as I'm concerned. He also kind of gives a certain certain characters this larger than life quality that makes them seem much more important, especially when it matters. So yeah, I'm really digging this new Harley Quinn book from DC. We had no doubt when Stephanie Phillips is going to be involved. So yeah, go ahead and grab this one if you haven't already. Here's another one that I went into that I wasn't sure at first, then I saw who was writing it, and that's Alien Number 1 from Marvel Comics, and it's written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Yeah, so expect gushing to be coming here soon. Salvador LaRocca on the art here, Guru, Guru EFX on the colors, VCs Clayton Cowles on the letters, Inhyuk Lee with an incredible cover if you haven't seen it already. Again, maybe a minor spoilers here, but nothing too huge that'll ruin the book for you. We meet Gabriel Cruz, who's having terrible dreams about xenomorphs. Who wouldn't, right? Now, I have to say that the way that Philip Kennedy Johnson describes the aliens in these dreams, there's like the, you know, the internal monologue thing going on and the terror that they bring is incredible. I mean, described in a way that I've never seen it described before, creeped me the hell out. Even if I wasn't seeing it on the page, it was horrifying. And I got to tell you, that's hard to do when you're talking about a, a comic book adaptation of Alien. So well done th- just on that. Now, the art is great, but the picture that he frames with this is, is unmatched. I mean, but, but, the, but the, the art going with it just makes it even, even better. Now, the good news for Gabriel is he's retiring from Epsilon Station. You'd think that would be a good thing, right? He's head back to Earth, or maybe he isn't. Maybe something's looking for him. I don't know. You'll have to find out. Anyway... There's a nice timeline that's provided after that. It kind of tells you what's been, been going on at Wayland, Wayland Yutani. I think that's how you say it. I'm terrible with names. You guys know that. Now, that tells you what they've been up to. And we're in the year 2200, by the way. And again, in true Philip Kennedy Johnson fashion, it always comes back. To, I shouldn't say always. It comes back to family because he wants to reconnect with his son, Danny. Gabriel does. But it turns out Danny's got his own agenda and his own feelings about absentee dad. And this is some heavy stuff. I, I will tell you that there's a lot of heavy stuff in that relationship. Now, Dan, Danny came for something, too. Now, whether or not what he came for is going to lead to him making a huge mistake or not, I guess you'll have to find out as the book kind of progresses. Now, the horror in this book, I said it before, it's very psychological, though. And that says a lot. When you're talking about a book that deals with alien, it deals with xenomorphs and stuff like that. I mean, the fact that some of this horror is just psychological is, as I think, a testament to, again, the writing and the art team. 
There are a lot of haunting visuals, though. I, I will tell you that right now. So don't go into this thinking you're not going to get that because you definitely are. But you combine that with the story elements in this book, this one's going to stick with you. I really do think that this one is going to stick with you more than you think. So Alien number one, proceed if you dare. And I mean that in a good way. Yeah, go ahead and grab this book when you get a chance. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. There's some big time headlines and nerd news this week, and we'll tackle them. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Kent, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The movie landscape undergoes another big change. It's time for nerd news, and I say that because it seems like this was inevitable. But at the same time, it almost seems like it wasn't going to happen. But Disney has finally decided that they are sending Black Widow and Cruella, by the way, to Disney Plus Premier Access same day as the theatrical release. Now, before I get into the release dates and all that stuff, same rules apply here. $30 price point. It'll be in your Disney Plus account, just like Raya was, just like Mulan was, and stuff like that. So, here's the deal. Black Widow is moving to July 9th now. So July 9th in theaters and on Disney Plus Premier Access. But before that is when we'll get Cruella from Emma Stone. That is going to be on May the 28th. Of course, that is the origin story movie of the Cruella DeVille villain from 101 Dalmatians. But as big of a release as that is, and I'm stoked for the Cruella movie, by the way. It looks way better than I expected that it would have been. But you have to look at Black Widow in this instance, right? Because it's the first Marvel Studios movie that is going to be available on Disney Plus Premier Access. Obviously, theater distributors can't be thrilled about this because this is a major, major move. Because if you think about it, Black Widow was kind of the movie that we were looking at, right? That was going to be the, okay, so this will be the first like big movie that comes out in theaters, right? Post-pandemic, or at least towards the end of the pandemic, right? This is like, that was supposed to be like our back to normal movie, right? And now even Disney's saying, eh, back to normal by summer. I don't know about that. So now they're doing what I believe is the right thing. And they're doing the dual release model because I mean, I've talked about this ad nauseum. Okay. There are absolutely things I miss about the theater experience, but at the same time, the home experience I think has been working as well. So I'm not going to sit here and say, I want movie theaters to go away. I don't for a number of reasons, but at the same time, there are certain movies that I don't need to see on the big screen and that I would rather wait, or I will wait to see on at home. I'm not saying black widow is one of them either, but I think giving people the option is the smart thing here financially. Anyway, for Disney, why would it not be a smart thing for them to do financially? Because yes, black widow if it was if this was a normal world, Black Widow and Cruella probably would have made a ton of money. We know Black Widow would have. This is not a normal world. Who knows who knows when it's going to be a normal world again. This is a smart thing and it's also a way for them to once again pump up Disney Plus because this is also about investors. We need to think about this too. I know that something I mean, I don't want to get all Bloomberg on you here or anything. But you have to start thinking about big picture. They're not just answering to us. The moviegoer, the fan, they're answering to their investors as well. And on paper, if Disney Plus looks good, that looks good for the investment in Disney as a company as well. So there's a lot that factors in to this decision. And I just think this, again, this is the right move for fans. This is the right move for anybody 
who who really wants to see these movies but just is not comfortable going back to the movies. And as far as and I didn't even mention the fact that Luca, that movie that I talked about the trailer for a couple of weeks ago, that the cool little monster movie that looks like they're going to be coming out with, that is going to go right to Disney Plus. It's going to skip theaters entirely. I think that's actually coming out sometime in June. So, and that'll be free and that'll be free of charge too. That's not even going to be premier access. So again, I think Disney, this, this is a lot of good faith from Disney. I kind of blasted them a couple weeks ago for something. And I, and I got, and I got to say, this definitely makes up for that. I think this is the right move. And I think that this is going to make them a lot more money than you might think. I mean, you saw how Raya did at the box office, obviously also available on premier access, not a huge box office number for Raya, pretty good pandemic wise. But at the same time, you have to look at that and say, maybe the landscape is changing and you can either adapt with the changes and adapt to the times or you can get left behind. And I don't think Disney is in the business of being left behind. They're trendsetters and they know it. So they don't want to be behind on this. You want to talk about something that was inevitable. I think this is and maybe minor spoilers here if you're not caught up on season two of Batwoman. But here we go. Kate Kane is coming back, not Ruby Rose. Kate came because it was reported at first by TV line that Wallace Day is going to be playing Kate Kane in Batwoman from now on. This is going to be a very much, I don't want to say reconstructed Batwoman, but, but or Kate came, but she's obviously going to be looking different. She's transformed because she's been in this accident, right? We will say the aftermath of what happened to her in this crash. Okay. So that's one of the things that we're going to deal with. If you saw the last episode of Batwoman, I'm talking about the I'm talking about the week of the previous week, the 20 what was it, the 22nd, I think it was or something like that, so somewhere along those lines. Anyway, so that was the episode you kind of see her at the end, right? And this brings up that was the ninth episode. Yeah. So this is the this brings up a whole bunch of different stuff, right? I mean, Caroline Dries actually says that, you know, Wallace Day is an amazing actress, and she is. If you saw her as Ness of X on Krypton, she is fierce. She is awesome. I love Wallace Day. I can't, I could not be more excited for her, her to play Kate Kane. If I was to make a short list of actresses that would have replaced Ruby Rose in this role if they recast it, Wallace Day would have been on the short list for sure. So... To me, this is one of those things where you, you can have Ryan Wilder coexist with Kate Kane. You can. It also creates a very interesting storyline dynamic that might have been missing a little bit from season two of Batwoman because ratings have been down. As much as I like the character of Ryan Wilder, fans were just more invested in Kate Kane's story. And part of the reason for that is, is that there's there's canon there. Right. And you can't discount that when you're telling a story like this. Ryan Wilder, who is a brand new character and a, and a good character. There's just no canon there. So, yes, they did make a connection with Alice, but it can't possibly be as good as the connection that Alice and Kate had. I mean, the, the whole sister aspect of the thing. Then you've got dad as the leader of the crows and that whole mess that happened to them in their past. You cannot you can't replace that with anything. Right. And, and they did a good job with making that connection with Ryan Wilder. But it, it, again, it's just not the same. You bring that diamond dynamic back a little bit, but now you also bring back the, you know, who is, who's the real Batwoman dynamic? How's this going to affect team Batwoman? You've got black mask who is coming up in the, later on this, in this season. I think it was just announced that Peter outrider 
is going to be playing Black Mask in Batwoman, so that we already know who's going to be cast there. I think that this was an inevitable thing that they knew that they had to do at, at a certain point. And was this the plan all along? I don't know. I'm not going to go that far and say this was the plan all along. And I, excuse me, it was Peter Outerbridge that was cast uh, as, as Black Mask, excuse me, according to Deadline. I'm not saying this was the plan all along because I don't know that they were necessarily thinking about bringing Kate came back right away. But when you've got Wallace Day sitting right there available for this role and you can add somebody with that kind of wow factor, you don't pass that up, first of all. Second of all, you don't pass up the chance to layer your story even more than you already had it. And of course, people reached out to Ruby Rose for her response on the whole deal. She said nothing but love. And and I think Ruby's moved on. And I think that now the show has also moved on from Ruby because no matter how you felt about last season of Batwoman, I mean, Ruby left big shoes to fill. She did a great job as Batwoman and Kate Kane in season one. And that was a tough act to follow as far as I'm concerned. You might not agree, but I think she was. So... What we get here is another chapter, a brand new chapter, and somebody else to kind of take up the mantle and see how she does with it. I think that she might do, I think she'll do just as good, if not better, than Ruby did, but only time will tell. But I think that this is, again, a very necessary move for Batwoman. It makes things very, very interesting going forward, not just for season two, but beyond. And because the ratings haven't been as good as they would like them to be, this could be a great, just really good boost for this show. And I will have to see how much of an impact this actually makes. You want to talk about making an impact though? How about the Netflix deal with Boom Studios? It's really starting to pay off in a big way, isn't it? And this just kind of worked out because if you've been, if you've read the first issue of the Keanu Reeves, Matt Kent project, Berserker, the comic that was actually created by Reeves, then you know that there's some serious star power behind that. Netflix realizes that. So now we're getting two different versions of Berserker on Netflix. The first is going to be a live action movie, which is going to be starring, of course, Keanu Reeves, going to reprise his role as the character. And, you know, this was also created by Ron Garvey. I can't, can't leave Ron Garvey out, Bill Crabtree and Clem Robbins, who are, were a part of the creative team for this. So Reeves going to reprise his role from the comic. And we're also going to get, by the way, an anime series, which is going to explore different story elements to this, to this Berserker story. So again, this is one of those deals where Netflix just really locked out, didn't they? Like you get a Keanu Reeves led project out of your first look deal with Boom Studios. That, that, that is a major, major deal. And for, for Keanu, clearly, this is like his baby, right? So yeah, he created the story. He could have easily had somebody else star in this role. And he's like, no, 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 no. I want to take, you know, I want to take the reins and, and see this through and do this. And I mean, he just wrapped Matrix 4. He's going to be working on John Wick, John Wick 4 next. And then hopefully we'll get him to start working on Berserker. I mean, the, the, the timetable is not really clear for when this is going to be starting. There's really no clear timetable as for what's going to be going on as far as as far as what the story element's going to be for the anime series, which is going to follow, again, they said something different, but that could mean, you know, almost anything. Here's the deal. This is going to be a just insane action movie. 
it's going to be completely insane. If you want if you want all the plot details on Berserker, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Got those up there for you. I don't really want to read the whole synopsis, but this is going to be a major, major action movie for Netflix. And again, a comic book adaptation that just makes sense. Now, this is only there's only been one issue of this book, but it sold over 600,000 copies. It's big. It's Boom's biggest launch in 30 years. That should tell you all you need to know right there. People are not only interested in the story, but interested in being in the business of Keanu. Keanu Reeves is one of the most popular actors in Hollywood, period, right now. You want to be on board with almost anything that he's got going on, and this is one of those things for sure. There's been a lot of DC movie news this week, and a lot of it exciting for me. So I'm going to start with the one that I want to start with because I'm super excited about this. You know I'm a Dr. Fate fan. I never shut up about my love of Dr. Fate on this podcast or on the website or on social media. So when the Hollywood Reporter broke the news that Pierce Brosnan was going to be playing Dr. Fate in the Black Adam movie, I was not okay. I was so so excited. I couldn't wait to tell everybody, even people who didn't know who Dr. Fate was, I couldn't wait to tell them. Like, having an actor like Pierce Brosnan take this role was just incredible to me. So, Kent Nelson is now going to be Pierce Brosnan. And here's the other thing that gets me excited, and this and this is where I start to go off the rails a little bit. You don't cast somebody like Pierce Brosnan for a one-off like this, right? You don't cast Pierce Brosnan in a role like Dr. Fate if you're not planning on using Dr. Fate again. It was like when Marvel cast Benedict Cumberbatch as Dr. Strange, and I know I'm comparing magician to magician, but just just follow me on this. So, Dr. Strange has never been an A-list character, right? And I know that Dr. Fate is not an A-list character either. I'm, I'm willing to admit that. But you get a star like Benedict Cumberbatch to play Dr. Strange, you knew they had bigger plans for him. So I feel the same way about Pierce Brosnan. You cast Pierce Brosnan as Dr. Fate, and guess what? Yeah, you, you've got bigger plans. You just haven't told us what they are yet. I think the Black Adam movie is going to be huge. It's going to open up a lot of doors just even beyond this whole the, the whole Black Adam movie. But this just gives me hope that there will be a Dr. Fate movie at some point. It seems like DC is leaning heavy into their magical world because we find out also that the Zatanna movie, which has already been announced is actually going to be written by somebody who just won a WGA award for promising young woman. That's right. Emerald Fennel is going to be, is going to be writing the Zatanna movie. So how about that? According to variety. And, and again, there's, it's very much, in the early stages, we haven't seen Zatanna in live action since Smallville, so it's been a while. We've obviously seen Zatanna in some other things, but I mean, again, this is one way to kind of develop more of your Justice League dark universe that I think could go really, really well on screen for DC. But I do want to address something because you might be thinking, if you listened to the show last week, I went off on how Our Man doesn't need his own movie. It's ridiculous. Why are we giving everybody their own movie sort of thing? And and you just listen to me praise a Zatanna movie and hope for a Dr. Fate movie. Okay, I understand why you might think I'm a little bit of a hypocrite on this, but our man, we, we've we got the JSA covered on TV. We've got the, we've had the JSA covered in, we've got an animated JSA movie coming out now. We've had a couple of different Hour Man versions already, one on Legends of Tomorrow, one on Stargirl. 
Now we're going to have it in the animated version. And it's just, we don't need an Our Man movie. But these magical characters like Zatanna and Dr. Fate, that's something we haven't explored a lot of on TV or live action from DC yet. So let's open that door up a little bit and see what happens. I'm not saying every magical character should get their own movie either, but at the same time, and, and, and of course, a lot of this is based on success too. Like if a Zatanna movie does well, maybe you look at, at doing something else in that realm. And if it doesn't, maybe you don't. You know, maybe if the Zatanna movie fails, we don't get a Dr. Fate movie. And that's, you know, that's just the way that goes. But again, Pierce Brosnan. And, and you want to talk about names. Deadline reported this one as well. Shazam Fury of the Gods has its villain now. And it's going to be Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren is going to be playing a character called Hespera. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Hespera. This is a brand new character. And all we know is that she is the daughter of Atlas. And there might be some connections there as well. Just, just Not saying, just saying. Okay, you go, go to down, again, go to downnerdypodcast.com if you want a little more information on that. But again, this is another one of those times where... You're getting a big name for this movie to play the to play the villain, and yeah, I know what you're thinking. You know, how is that going to work with Helen Mirren as the villain against Shazam, played by Zachary Levi? How is that going to work? Well, we'll find out how it's going to work. I don't know if this is going to be a CG type situation. Until we get a first look at Hespera, there's really not a whole lot that we know about this character. So it's it's almost like a little bit of a mystery role and having a little bit of mystery in this movie, not necessarily a bad thing because everybody's saying, okay, when's black Adam going to meet up with Shazam? Well, now you don't have to worry about it because Shazam's got other problems to deal with that are not having to do with black Adam. So I'm some major DC movie news this week. Hopefully it all works out. It's going to be a while. Anyway, we're not going to see Shazam fury of the gods until June 2nd of 2023. And there's no release date at all for the Zatanna movie. Yet. So, I mean, it's going to be slow and steady here for DC, but it looks like they're, they've got at least got a bunch of stuff in the pipeline that they'd like to try in the future. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to my amazing guests, Matt Long and J.K. Simmons, Stephen Yun, Robert Kirkman for joining me this week. You want even more stuff on the show, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. We're now available on the Samsung free app. If you want to subscribe on Samsung, go to the Samsung free app, go to the Listen tab, and that is where you'll find the Down and Nerdy Podcast, one of the first shows to launch on Samsung free. Super, super excited about that. So you can listen on your Samsung device. You can also subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. And of course, make sure you follow us on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and Instagram and at Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. And be good to your fellow nerds.